Not only is the universe stranger than we imagine, it is stranger than we can imagine. This is episode 4 of the Cosmic Anthropology Broadcast System, the Team Machine Chat Prologue. The plan here is to record an in-depth prologue to the forthcoming Team Machine Chats, the members of which you will meet in forthcoming episodes, some of which you've met in previous episodes, because time is cyclical like that. Maybe you're listening to this in completely random order, who knows. But the point is that I have time now before I disappear down another freelance writing wormhole, rabbit hole, is to record this now. Hi, hello internet. And then I can just whip up the podcasts with the chats later on. And that concludes our tour of the Sausage Factory. Things we are going to talk about, that I am going to talk about, to introduce briefly and elaborate on myself before cutting over in future episodes to my compadres, to my fellow machine civilization welcoming philosophical travel mates, is the apocalyptic fiction of The Walking Dead, 12 Monkeys, Fury Road, the idea of the Neanderthal's Dilemma, which we touched on and, well, sketched out really in a previous episode, whose number I forget, it's probably the first one. I'm going to elaborate upon that some more, and then get into a bit of uh, cosmic horror riffing, because who doesn't love the philosophy of the void and the nature of trying to glimpse reality unfiltered? What else? Well, I just read a preview of my buddy Alesh Kotz's material which uses a line, we only see 3% of the visible universe, and that gives you a taste of what many of us think about a great deal. Some other news briefly. So I said Fury Road. Last episode, I told you a little bit about my trip to Cooper PD. Well, that has been written up and published on roadsandkingdoms.com. I will put a link in the show notes. It is a riveting tale, if you don't mind me saying so, of myself and Wayne's journey to becoming stalkers. So obviously it's called Mad Max Ground Zero, because the place we went to was Ground Zero. And everybody loves Mad Max. Also, as I think I mentioned, Mad Max 3 Beyond Thunderdome was filmed there. Meanwhile, Fury Road has come out, the latest installment in the Mad Max we're not saying franchise, film series, which can be... I, I, I saw it tagged on IMDb as a... This is a word now, apparently. in betweekle. Make of that what you will. I have not seen the internet react so strongly to a film. It's kind of incredible. I've been ticking off all the people mapping out their own readings of it, from Mackenzie Walk to Penny Red to Simon Sellers. Balladian did a great little Mad Max piece, referencing his own work. And I, I was fortunate enough to attend the Melbourne premiere, so I was pretty, had a lot of time to think about it before other people had even seen it, by virtue of that fact. Wrote a big, long review on Daily Grail, where I like to write big, long, thoughtful, philosophical dissections referencing mythology and such, which is exactly what I did in this case. Positing that the film is a, how would I put it succinctly here? A piece of mythology piece of pre-packaged mythology for the post-collapse world that takes a 
equal position to the Conan tales on the cycles of fictional history. I even put a graph in there in the post because everybody loves graphs. Which is a good way to wind up the preamble. What else? Oh, the other news is that this podcast is now part of a holistic collection that I have titled Dark Extropian Musings. And you can support this work now via Patreon and receive advanced copies of forthcoming, not just this podcast, but the newsletter, the De-Extinction Club newsletter, and any future Dark Extropian reports via the subscription. But just, I think, a set it up, like, two bucks US a month. Now, so, we've talked about... We've talked about what's coming up. We've talked about what's been happening. Let's go to a little break. And when we return, talk about the Neanderthal's Dilemma. All right. So, let's talk about the Neanderthal's Dilemma some more. As I previously mentioned, this was something discussed and defined in the previous episode on Neanderthal's. I read the speech where it's sketched out in Ramiz Nam's book, Nexus. And would you believe, would you believe that the reason it's been on my mind so much is I'm reading the latest book in the Nexus trilogy, Apex, which is excellent, but I had to put it down briefly. Another book I keep picking up and putting down is The Invaders, which I'm holding in my hand by Pat Shipman. One of the very interesting parts that I've read so far is where she summarizes Clive Finlayson's work on the Neanderthal. Now, Invaders is a book about invasion biology, principally about humans as the principal invader that we've invaded and transformed the ecologies of the world. Which maps with my whole thing about we are the asteroid. We are the slow-motion asteroid-made flash transforming the world and the cause of the sixth mass extinction. Dot com. So, it's interesting to read Clive Finlayson's work being summarised here, and what he is arguing is that modern humans and Neanderthals could have easily coexisted on the uh, ecologies as humanity moved out of Africa once more and into the Eurasian plains. So I'm just going to read a little bit from the book. She quotes him as saying, It was a shifting balance, a sort of semi-permanent geographic coexistence. Makes sense to me. When modern humans reached the Eurasian plains, where Neanderthals were already rare, if not locally extinct, the question became moot. There were neither geographic barriers nor competitive barriers to the expansion of moderns, it's us, once Neanderthals had retreated to an ever-dwindling Mediterranean area from which they were never able to recolonize the central and northern areas again. Now, the thing about... This is me talking, not the book. The thing about anthropology paleoanthropology, archaeology, etc., is it's only as good as the data. And the samples we have seem to be from the the last members of the species, and we're slowly doing some very interesting genetic work, we as in the scientific community of humanity that we all variously sample and dip into and think about. But, like, you know, don't judge a species by its endling. That's what I like to say. And the Neanderthals they're finding, the ones that are preserved, right, the ones that are closest in time to us, are the last remaining members of the species, apart from, obviously, the parts 
that were preserved into modern humanity because we are a hybrid species constantly, apparently over time, interbreeding, as Adam talked about in the previous Neanderthal episode about his high Neanderthal DNA. So it's unfair to characterize a whole species based on the last, the dwindling population, right? Where they're finding that they were inbred. I mean, it's the end of the world, right? Like, they mated with whoever was there. The end of their world, anyway. But what we're finding is that this is the way a species dies, right? Low genetic diversity until final extinction. They continue on limping as best they can. And this is true of a great many of the species of the Pleistocene, which was the last big, not extinction event, but the last big sort of changeover of species, I guess, you know? So guys like the mammoth, uh, all these gnarly super predator, proto wolves, stuff like that. The samples we find, low genetic diversity, inbreeding. And we're watching the same thing happen now. That's the Revive and Restore project for the black-footed ferret is trying to reverse extinction by increasing genetic diversity. It's You can't breed from one parent a whole population. So what they're doing is taking like museum samples and any preserved sample they can to increase genetic diversity as they clone new members of the species and try and undo our acts as the asteroid, as the invader, disrupting ecologies, displacing ecological systems. To return to the book briefly, Finlayson emphasizes that such a dynamic coexistence was dependent on the carrying capacity of the habitat. Carrying capacity is an ecological term referring to how many organisms a particular habitat can sustain indefinitely. So we have been disturbing the ecologies and they form their own stasis, their own level of stasis, which looks natural. But what we're now finding through history is that their carrying capacity was once much higher. Go back to like the Amazon, for instance, when pre-human invasion, the, oh, glycodon, I can't pronounce it, giant freaking armored armadillo, Megafauna was rocking around the forests. It was the chief ecological engineer. It is now gone. And the carrying capacity was infinitely higher. We're finding that the ecology now, when we see, you know, we call it the fertile Amazon, whatever, is like, I think, a small fraction of what it once was. So when we look at projects to restore the ecology, what we can actually do is vastly increase the carrying capacity of the earth to what it once was. That, in fact, the Earth is a desert compared to its previous peak existence. And maybe overpopulation isn't a problem after all. Who knows? Third bit from the book. Finlayson suggests that the Eurasian ecosystem was not entirely full, not so heavily populated by mammals that no species could be supported, and so Neanderthals and modern humans were not in direct competition with each other. He believes their lifestyles involved complementary adaptations. Neanderthals, he argues, were ambush predators that used the cover of brush and tall grasses as they stalked their prey until they got close enough to kill with handheld weapons. Like ninjas. They were freaking ninjas. If this interpretation is correct, then it is incredibly impressive that Neanderthals managed to kill large prey. Modern humans had long-distance weapons, projectiles, and favoured the vast open plains of the stepland and tundra. Both of these assumptions are supported by archaeological and anatomical evidence. So complementary adaptations are something we see in a lot of other species. The other big de-extinction species, sort of flagship 
charismatic whatever. Is the thylacine. Is the Tasmanian tiger killed, last member killed by pure neglect in a Tasmanian zoo, hunted to extinction across Tasmania, in captivity, dead, once roamed the mainland of Australia. Now, there's various theories as to how it became extinct on the mainland, and the big one had previously been that dingoes outcompeted them. However, the latest re uh, research I've read suggests that, like humans and Neanderthals, they had complementary adaptations, and that the thylacine was an ambush predator. Now, the other interesting thing about the dingo, there's a great deal of interesting things about the dingo, but the other thing I read the other day was that they were introduced from India. The dingo is a center from the Asian morph. India is part of Asia. And that there was a migration from India about 4,000 years ago, which led to a great cultural change in the country, where the population then began to rise, got a new level of technology. And, you know, there's very, very little research being done about this, but the history of Australia is absolutely fascinating, and I think a vast understudied area with insights waiting to be discovered. So it's interesting when it maps into tales of gods coming. Every civilization has tales of builder gods and mythical entities or strangers who taught them the ways of civilization and would appear in this case to map to a genetic admixture, as it's called, if I'm getting the terminology correct. That a population influx began 4,000 years ago that came the companion animal that we love, personally, the dog, and a concomitant rise in population. And that it wasn't actually the dingo that outcompeted the thylacine, it was the human. Once again, we're just, we are the invader, we are the asteroid, we are the great destroyer. And with our knowledge, we can now begin the act of reconstruction. Cool, right? So let's talk about TV shows instead of ecological theory for a little bit, and then title up in a bow. So, as we've talked about previously, the apocalypse. So the, the Neanderthals, it's called a Neanderthal's Dilemma because they face an apocalyptic event, which was the arrival of the humans. This is mapped. This is used as a metaphor or analogy for the arrival of a superior species to humanity. What do they do? The dilemma they face. Do they fight off the superior species and, in effect, kill the future? kill their own future evolution or change? Do they welcome their own extinction? Or do they march, as uh, Rust Corley says, hand in hand into the void? I'm misquoting him, but you know what I mean. Now what we know, it's a false dilemma, because what we know is that Neanderthals joined with humans. Quite possibly there was a cultural exchange, right? They taught them their local knowledge. We know that Europeans are white because they got the genetics, that adaptation from the Neanderthals. And what we can use this idea to think about, to look at things with, is our current situation, humanity's current situation. So we have a whole range of aspects which is applied to from the supernatural, the mythical, and the technological, where our species and the fear of the alien. That's the other, I think, comparison I made. The old Brookings report, right? Whenever a species encounters a superior species, it becomes extinct. But the general gist ha has been mutants or post-humans. So, you know, the X-Men, they fear that they are you know, the new humanity. And this is most recently depicted on television, on actually on PlayStations, because television has just sort of diffused into the internet of devices. 
PlayStation's adaptation of the comic book Powers by Bendis, if I got that right, which is the most literal depiction. It's just completely about superpowers as the next species and non-superpowered people fighting against them. It's like, you know, a, a, a defanged, basically, superpower in a former power is the protagonist who just wants these powers back because, you know, why would Superman want to be mortal when he's been Superman? Except that when humans write Superman, it's all about the tensions of being mortal. Oh, to be Clark Kent again. But when it's done properly, when, like, Grant Morrison does it, it's, like, a step into godhood. Which I find far more interesting. I find that we can extend ourselves culturally, and I'll, well, this is where we start getting into cosmic horror later. Like, there's the myth of progress, and there's the ongoing, the striving to be better. Right, those are different things, right? Like, it's not guaranteed that things will get better. And, uh... That's where this show, this new movie, Tomorrowland, could be interesting. I don't know. I really don't know. We'll see. But for the moment, what we have is several cultural works examining what happens when the Neanderthal lives or merges with the superior species or the existing species or forms a synthesis of new species, which I find interesting. What comes next after the apocalypse? Fury Road is purely about this, and that's the basis of my review, as I mentioned. How does a community begin to rebuild? What are the cycles of man, the cycles of humanity, the cycles of a species? Like, the no, no extinction event is complete because there is life still. But we have had several mass extinctions. A great deal of life has been killed. But birds are here. They are the proof that the dinosaurs did not all die. They rebuilt. They survived. Humanity has faced near extinction before. We know this. It's been several genetic bottlenecks. In fact, all Europeans and Asians are descended from a very small population that made it out of Africa. Not to mention, and that was... What are we saying? 200,000 years ago? No, 30,000 years ago? Pick a scale. Pick a scale. At all cycles. What 12 Monkeys does is looks, looks at how a community reforms in part. This is one of the interesting things it adds to the mythology of the show, which is a adaptation of a film which is based on a short film. Right? Cycles. How does a community reform? What use do they make of the existing infrastructure? Do they, they literally bunker down in a bunker and use the remaining high-tech, continuing it to try and, well, they're trying to like go back in time and um, prevent the apocalypse. But the really interesting thing is the continuance across time. And this is something that will be the subject of the first Team Machine chat. We'll explore this in depth. The Walking Dead, on the other hand, does the complete opposite. It sort of shows that life becomes way more brutal. And you could sort of almost map that onto a prelude to Fury Road. It's incredibly patriarchal. Everyone looks to Rick frickin' Grimes, who I just can't stand. His boy is a hero because he's become a warrior. He's like this teen badass warrior with a cowboy hat, rocking around. And he's, the kid's like, only the strong. And this is where we enter into the idea of the selective funnel what elements of the species and a culture are preserved and become the new fitness adaptations moving forward. So in The Walking Dead, it's like you have to be strong. It's this warrior culture. In Twelve Monkeys, it's the... Well, they form various communities, but the most interesting are the daughters, and that's an element that's just barely been fleshed out, and I think in Season 2 will go places. And then, of course, there is the actual Twelve Monkeys themselves. And that is very interesting. That is where the show enters into potentially post-humanity. They are 
group here to be a new race, a new synthetic race. And I guess you could map that again onto, um, to, um, what's it called? Let's call it Clone Club. Orphan Black. Yes. Now, the third point I want to make about the Neanderthal's Dilemma is that it is a metaphor that can be extended beyond looking at humanity versus post-humanity, which is something that it took me a while to, to tweak to, that it is equally applicable to Theater of the Rise of the Machines, something that Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking will not shut up about, whereas the Nexus books are all about our synthetic co-evolution with the machines, post-humanity through nanotech, and becoming a new Borg-like, but not completely Borg-like, but shared consciousness distributed self, which is something that um, Ghost in the Shell really just starts to get into. And the other reference point there would be her, which instead the machine, it's like a really gentle ascension to me. But I mean, that film, even though it's titled Her, and it's all about the software's evolution, is still centered through the human. You know, it becomes about them. Maybe point. I don't know. Then we have, so we have the fear. The fear of the other, where the other is the dominator species. It's the core of the Neanderthal's dilemma. What I've been completely disappointed about the TV show Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as opposed to the comic book S.H.I.E.L.D. written by Jonathan Hickman, where they are, in the comic book, they are debating the way forward, right? This is not how the world ends, is the refrain. And you have time-travelling Da Vinci versus immortal, immortal alchemist Isaac Newton with two factions within S.H.I.E.L.D. competing, you know, do they guide mankind from... The Shadows, you know, etc. It's, it's really good and ranges through history. Versus the TV show Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is the most extreme anti-transhuman, anti-posthuman, anti-humanity's evolution I've seen since freaking Star Trek. And don't get me started on Star Trek. I could rant for hours on Star Trek. Star Trek, the short version. Come <laughs> invented a whole piece of mythology to justify its human purist agenda, right? The show is constantly, all the shows, the whole franchise is about humans going out into space with their, like, greater good agenda and their prime directive, but being, you know, even when they're diverse, they're not welcoming other, do you know what I'm saying? But most of all, they invented the transhuman war. They demonized, this is the, this is the key point, demonized the transhuman with these super soldier figures and then used that point to constantly put down the emergence of any technologically mediated future evolution of humanity. Now as a you know self-identified grinder and all about the self-guided personal evolution to cultural scale evolution, I find this offensive. And I found Agents of Shield ideologically offensive on a massive level. Shockingly so. Like I was shocked shocked. These people are supposed to be heroes. They're positioned as heroes, but they are just running around and they're like, can't wait to kill those people. We need to kill them now. And then again, the show demonizes the leadership of the Inhumans, who are the best representation of future humanity. And it's, they're like, what are they? The children of the Kree, basically. And they're a weapon, of course. But it's the, it represents the future evolution of humanity into new forms, which is going to happen. So we may as well drive the change ourselves, which is something I think about a lot. So yes, what S.H.I.E.L.D. does though, what Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Assets of S.H.I.E.L.D., Agents of freaking Hegemony, 
as I like to call it. And I haven't even seen Ultron yet. I, the last thing I have to see is Ultron before we can do this Team Machine chart. I've seen the other... Ex Machina? Excellent. Fury Road? Excellent. The reaction I've seen to Avengers Age of Ultron is like the most... It's made like a billion dollars, but every fan I know has just been like, eh. But apparently the Vision versus Ultron dialogue sequences are interesting. So I'll probably go see it tomorrow, at last. So the third... Yes! The regressive politics of our age is the final point. So, what was it like to be a Neanderthal? Do you ever wonder that? I do. I think about that a lot. Say you're a culture in decline. You know, say suddenly your leadership is completely regressive and inward-looking and denying of the reality, denying its imminent extinction. Say it's anti-science, anti-reason. Say it's ignoring the climate effects. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> right? You following me? I mean, you know, you just look at the, um, there's a myth of progress and there's progress and there's embracing change, right? The, just watching the constant backlash, even amongst otherwise, um, it's like there's a death of hope, right? You know, you have, you have these ambitious ideas like mammoth de-extinction, and the idea is not to populate the world with mammoths and various other megafauna. It is a symbolic quest to bring something wonderful back into the world and to attempt to undo things. And no one's freaking that really that interested. I mean, I'm interested, obviously, and people like me. But you look at the hate on Twitter against it, like the outright just like, you know, there's a death of hope and lack of wonder in the world. And I'm kind of getting really sick of it. And, you know, when, when Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is put forward as this, um, you know, I'm just, I'm done. <laughs> I mean, in, here in Australia, we had the advisor to the Prime Minister, like last week, say that climate change is basically a New World Order style conspiracy. In America, you've got, oh, what is it, that the scientists can't validate their own theories? Is it the, the, I don't know, just like massively regressive forces. I'll dig up the proper links in the show notes. And it's like, against all odds, there's still interesting work being done. On the one hand, we've just got everything becomes an app. And on the other hand, we've got... And I'm not, like, massively a Google fanboy. But at least, like, the implications of self-driving cars are quite transformative. They're literally, like, once upon a time, there was all this hype about the Segway and how it would transform the city. Actual... If, if, say, a progressive government were to invest in infrastructure that was a series of self-driving cars or whatever variation of that, and the actual sharing economy, not an exploitative sharing economy, but an actual sharing economy could develop, that is the way forward to a highly green society, right? This is the, the return of the bright green, which has sort of withered on the metaphorical vine of futurism lately. When all the politicians are just pro-coal and vested interests driving the actual day-to-day running of our society are run by lobbyists, it's difficult to find hope. So it's a good time to generate our own culture, those of us who can, and bunker down like the citizens of 12 Monkeys against an apocalyptic outbreak. It's like a metaphor. Anyway. Um, do I have any more points to make? How shit Western TV is? How completely unimaginative it is? Whether True Detective Season 2 will be any good? Nordic Noir. Nordic Noir is awesome. That's where I'm finding interest to hold my attention. That and the barely comedic satire of shows like Veep and this other one, Babylon. And the extinction aesthetic of anime like Knights of Sidonia, which I'm pleased to see has just returned in April.
Alright, that's enough rambling. I'm gonna have to like trim this down a little bit. But, you know, the point I guess I'm trying to make is that this is what it was like to be a Neanderthal. Even though there's 7 billion of us, the extinction of humanity could happen within a decade. It's not going to take a lot. And how you get the near extinction, the, oh, the jackpot years. That's, that's what I'm trying to talk about. Thank you, brain. The jackpot years of William Gibson's book, The Peripheral. So, three different essays I've written, three different pieces, are the extinction aesthetic travel journalism of a trip into the, into the wastelands at Cooper Pity. My straight up review of Fury Road, and the earlier thought riffing piece thing I did, about Fury Road mapped onto the peripheral. The jackpot years are one big, long, selected filter. The people that win the jackpot are the new post-human race that lie in the next century. Side note, when Gibson's first draft of the peripheral, he made them completely post-human to the point that he realised that they were alien to us, and he had to dial back the futurism so they'd be more relatable. And he staged the book, if you haven't read it, it's excellent. It's William Gibson at his best. I'd say his best work, yep so that he bridges the future with a near-future story and then a far-future story. But the actual original draft he's had was beyond that even. And personally, Bill, if you're listening, I'd love to read it. Just send me a copy. That'd be great. I'd get it. Me and mine would get it. So, the jackpot years as a selective filter. The world that lies on the other side of that near-extinction event of a vastly depopulated Earth being rebuilt by the citizens of that world is a, like all science fiction, a guide to what we could do today. They have self-driving cars, they have re-green cities, they have vast projects, ecological restoration. Their cities, they've torn up the roads where the rivers once were to bring them back. They have a network of parks. These are all things being discussed today. These I consider the green shoots of hope in an otherwise dying world. I have a concept I call the next nature utopia, which resembles a kind of... It's like Star Trek. Except with that tech, it's like biotech and more magical and spiritual. So it's not like Star Trek at all. Urban forests, robot guardians, the synthesis of the wild and civilization. These are the things I find interesting. We'll either die or figure it all out in the process. And this decade's going to be a roller coaster. That's enough rambling about the Neanderthals dilemma. We are the Neanderthals. Tell your friends. Don't fear future humanity. Tomorrow, we're going to pick up tomorrow my time with Cosmic Horror and Adventures into the Void, the foundational philosophical ideas that we can build a real culture with to embrace the challenges that lie ahead now. We'll see you then. Hi, so we're back. It's a day later, and we're all set now to talk about Russell Russell. Cosmic Horror. In the interim between recording, we, myself and Shiva, been out in the world, and I've read a chunk more of Apex, and I'm delighted to learn that there's symmetry to the trilogy, and the focus seems to be on building a homeland for the post-human, at least at the point that I'm up to. And I read an article just before I had a cup of tea about optimistic futurism, which to me is a bit oxymoronic, a bit limiting rather. The Dark Extropian motto is always, all hope lies in doom. And as I increasingly find myself thinking lately, the phrase, let's build a garden in the ashes of the world. But you know, maybe everyone will wake up of their own accord and we'll get to work without the dire doom descent 
into actual near-human extinction, the jackpot years, the world of very small bands of humans once more rebuilding, which is a bit horrific, which is what we're here to talk about. Specifically, Eugene Thacker's book, In the Dust of This Planet, which is a work of uh, speculative realism, speculative... It's a work of philosophy. It's called, in fact, The Horror of Philosophy. And it is a book that I found, as I read, as I've studied, as I've elaborated, as I've created, as I have uh, set up a series of posts on the Extinction blog to process it. There's been a lot of post-processing of this book. Very interesting. It's one of those slim but meaty volumes that I find myself returning to. And you say, why? Why, Mikey? Why do you keep going about this book? Why do you keep referencing it in your reviews on the Daily Growl? Nearly every single one, including the most recent TV series, Fortitude, which I termed a climatological horror and tried to dump a bunch more philosophy in. Why? Why Why are we obsessed with the climate? Because what else is there to the awake person? So... A motto, uh, another quote that I, my mind just grafted onto, that's just permanently wedged in my brain, and it's been the, um, popped up on my bios everywhere, I can't stop using it, and these podcasts, if this episode doesn't feature it, then future ones will. The world is stranger than we imagine, stranger than we can imagine. And the exercise becomes... Well, how, how much can we imagine? How can we stretch our minds? What techniques can we use to try and see further, to glimpse more, to hold the universe in our head? Or as some people think, the universe is in fact the size of our head. Which is a whole separate mystical diversion. And so this book by Eugene Thacker, In the Dust of the Planets, The Horror of Philosophy, Volume 1, is an attempt framed through the idea of trying to get grips with climate change, looking through horror fiction, specifically draws on a lot of old horror, but also dark metal and black metal and dark mysticism, which we will come to, to answer this question. Try and imagine a non-anthropocentric viewpoint to build a framework where we can begin to truly tackle the challenges ahead of us. Not just ahead of us, they've been coming for some time. And so while political frameworks largely ignore these questions, aggressively so, as we discussed yesterday, these are the questions, as I keep saying. So why horror? Why horror? Well first let's start with a quote from, as Eugene says, as the book begins. However, one of the greatest lessons of the ongoing discussion on global climate change is that these approaches are no longer adequate. We can instead offer a new terminology for thinking about this problem of the non-human world. Let us call the world in which we live the world for us. This is the world that we, as human beings, interpret and give meaning to. The world that we relate to or feel alienated from, the world that we are at once a part of, that is, 
also separate from the human. But this world for us is not, of course, totally within the ambit of human wants and desires. The world often bites back, resists, or ignores our attempts to mould it into the world for us. Let us call this the world in ourself. This is the world in some inaccessible, already given state, which we turn into the world for us. The world in itself is a paradoxical concept. The moment we think it and attempt to act on it, it ceases to be the world in itself and becomes the world for us. A significant part of this paradoxical world in itself is grounded by scientific inquiry, both the production of scientific knowledge of the world and the technical means of acting on and intervening in the world. Right? So we can see it's about creating a vocabulary to begin to discuss and think through these challenges. And the hope, the true hope of these dark times would be that this is how we, the initiated into the quest, the awake citizens, the people paying attention, who might eventually form these small bands of survivors, or the the ones, you know, found in small caves, like we find in the Neanderthals today, by whatever species comes to inherit the earth in some far distant point, there's your bleak moment. We, and this, you know, this maps onto other things like Gnosticism, like what lies beyond the black iron prison, you know, the, the ongoing quest in many mystical traditions to, to see the world as it truly is, to cleanse the doors of perception, to see reality unfiltered. And this is what a lot of horror movies, well not a lot, what a subset of horror movies are focused on, glimpsing horror of the real. And obviously, we start with Lovecraft uh, and his cosmic horror, where so many protagonists go on quests or initiate experiments. And uh, I haven't read all of this stuff. I've only been sampling it recently. But this is a exploration, an intellectual exploration that many people find compelling and interesting. That the world in itself is far stranger than we can imagine. So let's try and imagine it. It's another quote from In the Dust of This Planet. In a sense, the world without us is not to be found in a great beyond that is exterior to the world, the world for us, or the earth, the world in itself. Rather, it is the very fissures, lapses, or lacuna in the world and the earth. The planet, the world without us, is in the words of darkness mysticism, the dark, intelligible abyss that is paradoxically manifest as the world and the earth. So, what we're talking about here, to continue, is trying to glimpse forces of the world truly. And um, what I what I found interesting about Fortitude is the idea, the TV show, in my review, and why, why I called it climato climatological horror. So when we consider ourselves, as we do, situated now within the Anthropocene, in a world completely transformed by acts of humankind, and, you know, people people pick their favourite epoch to, to date this from, whether it's from when our ancestor species first became toolmakers, whether it's the end of the Ice Age, whether it's the uh, first atomic bomb that irradiated the world, that 
you know, irredeemably marked every single atom with uh, the atomic signature of our technology. You know, pick your pick your favorite scale. What it is is the world forever changed, and what then becomes fascinating to reconsider is horror. Or okay, so we've had in literature, at least as I was taught in my uh, schooling, the tropes of a tale, which was man versus man, man versus nature, and nature versus man. Now, when we think about the Anthropocene, nature, nature has been subsumed, right? It's under the boot of mankind. And I deliberately use man versus human sometimes, because implicit in this is patriarchy and the state, and it's all very much being driven by mankind and the humanity. And when we start thinking about personhood and peoples and extending that to machines and uplifted species and everything, human can become a broader concept which is a slight divergence. So, climatological horror then becomes the revenge of nature in the context of the Anthropocene. The next book I'll be reading is Cyclonopedia, which features oil, sentient oil, I believe, and where I've done an elaborate series of post-processing for In the Dust of This Planet, doing the opposite for Cyclonopedia, because I have so many gaps in my knowledge and I've been given a reading list by my buddy Wayne. It's one of the things we talked about on our road trip, was this book. So, you know, why watch television when you can read Plutarch's Lives of Alexander, or Herodotus, or watch Phantoms, starring, what's his name? Batman now. Ben Affleck, the guy from Fashionable Mail, as he was first introduced to the world. That's from Mallrats, by the way. So, both of these deal with different aspects of nature as an inhuman force. We're building a vocabulary here to discuss the true nature we find ourselves in. Right? So we have the world for us, the world without us. We have the idea of darkness mysticism, which we'll extend on shortly. And we have the idea of cosmic pessimism. Now, for those who aren't familiar with that term, that is the part of the worldview embodied by Rust Coley in True Detective. And one of the book club posts I did mapped out the very overt references between True Detective and In the Dust of Planet. One of the uh, recurring symbols is the spiral, and you can see that Rust sees the spiral a lot. Uh, the birds, the beginning, the uh, his journey into the underworld, very symbolic stuff there. The end, when he's either tripping balls, hallucinating, or glimpsing a true cosmic horror. Moment at the end, so, uh, one of my favourite scenes, right? So to Elaborate again, to quote once more from Eugene Thacker's book on what this is. The view of cosmic pessimism is a strange mysticism of the world without us, a hermeticism of the abyss, a noumenal occultism. It is the difficult thought of the world as absolutely unhuman and indifferent to the hopes and desires and struggles of human individuals and groups. Its limit thought is the idea of absolute nothingness, unconsciously represented in the many popular media images of nuclear war, natural disasters, global pandemics, and the cataclysmic effects of climate change. Certainly, these are the images or the spectres of cosmic pessimism, and different from the scientific, economic, and political realities and underlie them. But they are images deeply embedded in our psyche nonetheless. Beyond these spectres, there is the impossible thought of extinction, with not even a single human being 
to think the absence of all human beings, with no thought to think the negation of all thought. So you might be uh, beginning to see why this book is something that is to be studied more so than read, at least for a still middling philosophical initiate such as myself, who's only read scattered bits of all these other guys like Schopenhauer, Heidegger, Sartre. And of course Nietzsche is our homeboy and champion of the abyss. Love Nietzsche. Love to reread Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. Side note, Schopenhauer, watch the full extended director's, whatever it's called, cut of Chronicle. That's all about Schopenhauer. So yes. Um, so where are we? Well, we're talking about cosmic pessimism, we're talking about darkness, mysticism, we're talking about trying to build a culture to survive the selection filter that we are clearly already going through, to find a new, broader mindset, worldview, which in many ways is a return to a lot of ancient mystical themes, and as we get into cycles of time, again, as you study philosophy, what you'll find is that many times a lot of these great figures like um, Socrates, Pythagoras, they were considered actually reformers of philosophical traditions, right? So they've, they've come through and relit the flame, as it were. Pythagoras went to Egypt, Plato went to Egypt, and they both returned to Greece, to the Grecian city-states, to reinitiate what's considered the heartland of Western philosophy. Constant return. What's the Renaissance? The rediscovery of the lost Greek texts preserved by the Arabs. What's them? So once again, we find ourselves, as we go forwards, going back to reintegrate lost traditions. And the darkness mysticism is picking up elements and strands of this. So we'll do one more quote and then some riffage, and then we'll get on to dark mystic astrobiology. So the book ends in the dust of this planet, so I've sort of skipped out a few big quotes to define darkness mysticism. Darkness mysticism is not only figuratively, but historically the dark underside of mystical thought. Even at the apotheosis of divine communion, darkness mysticism retains the language of shadows and nothingness, as if the positive union with the divine is of less importance than the realization of the absolute limits of the human. Darkness mysticism is mystical not because it says yes to the therapeutic anthropocentric embrace of God, but because it says no to the recuperative habits of human beings to always see the world as a world for us. So we come now to a consideration, to a realization, to a integration of trying to imagine ourselves not as the apex predator that is part of nature, to be one species amongst many, amongst possibly an infinite number across the cosmos, to feel these inhuman forces, to imagine uh, ourselves not as the center of the universe. And a lot of progress in Western civilization has been enabling that dethroning of man. Like, I just read an interesting article this morning about Neanderthals, our good cousins, basically making the point that we stopped thinking about them from the context of our own superiority and start to look at them with familial bonds our lost cousins, which is an important change in thinking and something that needs to continue as we further continue the development of our civilization. And again, that's a big part of what we'll be talking about in the machine, in the team machine chats, is extending personhood again to the AI. And, oh, there's a quote 
That's right, the best thing so far in Apex, where he lets out, um, and this was eerie, because John Nash died yesterday, who uh, was one of the Game Theory guys, and Ramirez does this big riff on Game Theory, and uses the iterated prisoner's dilemma to define how you build a post-human civilization within the framework of an existing human civilization, and he lays it, lays it out so that the actors will be forced to comply. In fact, let me pull it up, pull up Ramiz Nam's latest book, Apex, and read this section for you now to better make the point. So we've got our hero Cade, who's the star of the whole Nexus books, talking to Ms. Debeer, Dr. Debeer, as she quickly corrects him, who's an Indian AIA uh, researcher, or spook, I forget. Anyway, as the book goes. It's Dr. Debeer, she replied, and yes, of course, she knows game theory. Continue. Post-humans are coming, he said. Copenhagen hasn't stopped the research. It's just hidden it. Too many people want the benefits. Armies, governments, individuals, sick people. What you are doing here with Nexus is part of that. It's just a matter of time until post-humans are among us, if they're not already. You agree? She looked into his eyes, impassive. Let's say I do. Cade nodded. Back to game theory. In ordinary prisoner's dilemma, if the other player trusts you, and you betray them, you defect. You can win big. The best strategy for a single round of Prisoner's Dilemma is to defect. A fact real-world police have taken advantage of with real-world prisoners for some time to be commented. Kate swallowed. That cut a bit too close to home. He pushed on. In Iterated Prisoner's Dilemma, it's different. Debut raised an eyebrow. Iterated Prisoner's Dilemma, she raised. Multiple rounds. More than two players. Kate nodded. Potentially thousands of players. Or millions. Players who can meet each other again and again. And who can remember how the other player has behaved before? Like real life, Debeer said. Kate nodded. And in iterated Prisoner's Dilemma, the winning strategy is to cooperate with strangers. But if you meet someone who's betrayed you in the past, who's defected against you, you betray them. Tit for tat, Debeer said. Generous tit for tat, Kate said. Start off cooperating. Betray those who betrayed you before but forgive those who've betrayed you in the past if they make amends by cooperating again. Of all deterministic strategies, that performs best. And do you think that's the situation we're in now, Debeer said? That we're in this game with future post-humans? And that if we defect, if we treat them poorly, they'll treat us poorly down the road. Dr. Debeer, Cade said, how would you feel about growing up in a society that granted you full rights and protections? Celebrated you, even, versus one that oppressed you, or maybe even tried to kill you. He paused, looking at her. What would you do, growing up that way, if you ever gained the upper hand? Which is a good little summary of, like, how to run a society in general, and if you need it, it's a logical rationale not to be a complete freaking asshole. And so we can apply this equally to, you know, preventing Skynet, to the rise of the apes, like, if you torture a bunch of apes and then they become sentient, they kind of, like, turn around and get revenge. And that's what those films are about, isn't it? You know. And this, as we sort of consider it, is a way to just, A, like, operate as ethically and better people in general, but B, 
going forwards, sort of lay down the foundations for a society that can not just embrace the arrival of uplifted animals, machine intelligence, but just flat out, like, you know, undo the evils of the patriarchy or other forms of oppression. Yeah, it's like, why do the ruling class always get executed? Because they've bastardized the population, so why not be moral, ethical citizens in general? Best case, you are just a better human being, and worst case, or as a side effect, as a happy side effect, you avoid being annihilated by angry machine intelligences, or whatever form post-humanity takes, which is what we in Team Machine like to look at, yes. Hence, building a culture tries to see the world as clearly as possible and find such other solutions to chart a course through the turbulent times ahead and to grow ourselves in the process. I think that's good. So these are the changes that we're beginning to sketch out for those of us paying attention as I fold under the banner of dark extropianism, deep time, cosmic viewpoint, extended personhood. Alright, so one of the other new concepts I've been developing I like to call dark mystic astrobiology which is the idea of, so just, just as we try and see the world without us, we extend that to the cosmos without us, right? When we talk about the universe being stranger than we imagine, the challenge becomes, can we truly begin to imagine the alien? Because we can only see what we can see. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Our, uh, nature of pattern recognition, our concepts, our philosophical frameworks. We can only measure what we test for. We can only, you know, I mean, we're only still learning about the nature of life on our own planet, extreme files. Uh, the, I'm very pleased to read another thing I read the other day was that the notion of panspermia is gaining more currency. And there was a, uh, subscription only, unfortunately, article in New Scientist making the case that life could well have originated on Mars that Mars was a perfect incubator for a, and get this, non-water-based origin of life, that it developed in the first stages on Mars through a whole complicated set of chemistry involving aurites or whatever, developed there in a primitive but still quite complex state, and then seeded Earth's oceans. Now, this is a idea that actually you will find in Peter Watt's book, uh, Behemoth Trilogy, whatever it's called. The Martian Mike asteroid is considered the seed of life within that. And Peter Watts and Ramez Nam are definitely two big dark extropian influences, at least as myself and Emily see them. So, aliens, right? It's not, again, new scientists talking about panspermia, and another interesting interview recently actually defines, for me, dark mystic astrobiology. This guy, Chris Impey, was interviewed talking about the truly difficult, the true challenges of envisaging the alien. And let me just play that for you now. So when you think about the possibility of life forms that might exist in distant galaxies, what kind of life forms do you think about? I, I don't think we are almost imaginative or creative enough to understand what they might be like. Um, you were inevitably conditioned by the culture. I've read science fiction. I love movies, Star Wars, Star Trek. But they sort of acculture us to, to think anthropocentrically. We sort of tend to think of life that's a little bit like us um, or, or a lot like us. And the truth is life could be so strange we might not recognize it, uh, certainly strange enough that we might not 
have real communication with it. So when you ask how strange life might be in the universe, I don't think we know how to answer that question. And that's actually quite exciting. Why do you find that exciting? Because I like the idea that we're not it. I like the idea that the universe, uh, the, the boundless possibility of 20 billion habitable worlds has led to things that we can barely imagine. I think, I think it's fun because it means your science is not self-contained and finite. It means that you have to really go out way out of the box even to imagine what astrobiology or life elsewhere might be like. So as he talks about, he says science accultures us. And so where, to sort of begin to wrap this up, where I find the horror being interesting is horror where we use horror as a way to break down our idea of the real or to consider the inhuman or the unhuman to ponder on where the lines of, of life and death really are, what lies beyond that. For some people, horror is just, you know, something to scare them. For other people, it's a philosophical toolkit or a set of cautionary tales. But when we compare it against science fiction versus horror fiction, and then the fusion of those two into science horror, normally survival horror in a science fictional setting, we get the contrast. So, I mean, it's generally agreed upon that science fiction is a way to reflect the present back at us through dramatically depicting certain elements exist today, right? So, you, you know, you take the idea and extend it, well, what if, you know, human civilization was on another planet? Or what if we had cars, but they flew? Or what if robots were alive? Or what if, you know, there's a whole lot, a whole lot of what-if tales that, as we continually talk about, let us think about today, about the now. But it's, it's looking forward to reflect back. And horror, for me, is looking sideways to reflect back right and then the fusion of the two you do both and lovecraft does this a lot of his tales are scientific adventures just as just as poe did a lot of mediations on the detective story in a similar sort of mindset lovecraft does scientific adventure tales which is interesting and i think the heroic adventures of Gunsi in the void is something that still has strong resonance and let's us begin to think about ourselves in that situation. I definitely think about myself in that situation, and as I was talking about yesterday, earlier, and planning more extinction aesthetic travelogue style adventures into various wastelands, and my friend Deb was good enough to send me a hyperreal metafictional badge that makes me an official member of the Mr. Tonic University. So I am become a Lovecraftian scientific adventurer, because why not? So yes, in conclusion, these books, this framework, this whole quest to build a new culture from the elements of history, fiction, mysticism, is foundational for me, and helps us consider the big mysteries as well. You know, dark mysticism helps us solve the Fermi paradox, and... Like, we can only, like, where, you know, the Fermi Paradox basically says, where is everybody? Well, we can only answer that by knowing where to look, you know what I mean? We can't, we have to try it and see more than 3% of the universe and use that as a metaphor to think and be more inclusive more than 3% of the time, extend personhood to all things. So for some concluding remarks, I'm going to play a little clip from a recent Guardian podcast a panel discussing the issues of de-extinction, which I was listening to. I mean, you know, why would I be listening to a podcast about de-extinction? And they sort of, what this, um, what this clip 
indicates is that for many people, true horror is the dismantling of the current situation, of the status quo. And it brought to mind that old quote, that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. So I'll just play this clip now, which um, indicates just what sort of problems we're really facing in terms of getting through this election filter that is the immediate future. But money's a money's a problem in general when it comes to conservation, because the okay. thing is, of course, we need more money, and we're always going to need more money. Yes. That That's kind of the real problem, is that it's a bottomless pit. Talk and, to me, I work for The Guardian. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but we, we're not ever going to have a solution monetarily. Yeah. So what we actually really need to do, I think, in conservation is not just talk about it as a charity thing, and we have to talk about it as something that is essential. And we have to talk about it in terms of being able to hold corporations to task for environmental crime, being able to get political on it, I guess. It's putting a price on nature and saying this is nature, this yeah. is... And the people who dislike the notion of putting a price on nature, because there's a lot of people who don't like ecosystem services and ideas like mm -hmm. that which try to monetize species or put a monetary value at the people who want to give to the snow leopard, who want to look after species, they're already convinced. They're already on the conservationists' team. The people that we need to get hold of are the people who are making the decisions. We have to have a, a government who's willing to put their, their voice behind this as well. Tough luck. Yes. <laughs> that, I think, will do for this episode. And then we will pick up some of these themes with my friends in the future Team Machine chats. And I look forward to talking to you then. Thanks, as ever, for listening to me and Shiva going. Shiva, speak. Shiva, speak. No, she's got nothing. Transmissions of the Cosmic Anthropology Broadcast System is sponsored by Elizabeth Action Action Stations. Any feedback, comments, requests, intern applications, and in general... Oh, death threats. Also, send death threats, please. To podcasts at marky.com. Thanks for listening. Cheers! All hail the glow cloud.